I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Great to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. And as we continue our conversation, uh, we're talking about some of the things that are broken in Washington, D.C., and some of you are chiming in. Uh, on that brokenness, to, to be sure. In fact, very interesting, uh, just on our uh, Utah Community Credit Union KSL text line, uh, which you can always join in on at 57500, uh, a number of folks, even who voted uh, for uh, President-elect Biden, uh, were also disappointed with the speech last night, that it was divisive, that it fanned uh, flames of anger and frustration. Uh, one person said, just you know, clear your throat. That was the challenge. Uh, and I will... I will admit that that part of it, uh, the throat clearing, was one I have great empathy for. If you ever spend a lot of time speaking, like on a radio show, and you get that frog in your throat and you just can't quite clear, uh, that's a tough day. So I felt empathy for the president-elect in that moment. But I thought the speech uh, was a wasted opportunity. It was not well-crafted. The message was wrong. The tone was wrong. And uh, it was a, a big missed opportunity. Uh, but now we want to shift back to, to Congress and what's happening there. Our good friend James Walner from uh, R Street uh, is joining us from Washington, D.C. today. And uh, James, first, thanks for joining us. And uh, you had a, a great piece first appeared in the, the Daily Caller uh, talking about the fact that uh, winning elections doesn't fix our broken legislature. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And as you were speaking there a second ago, I felt a lump creeping into my throat, <laughs> and it was everything I could do not to to try to cough. But don't think know, of a pink elephant. It's, it's that it's that test. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, common sense really is remarkable, and I think we forget about it all too often. And common sense tells us that if elections were going to change things, if elections were all that were needed to change things, then things would have changed by now because we have had a lot of elections over the past two or three decades. And things have either stayed the same or gotten worse, depending on your perspective. But I'm not sure I know anyone in America who thinks they've gotten better. Mm. And that tells me and common sense tells me that that maybe we're missing something here. Yeah, and it and it seems to me uh, we were talking earlier in the show that uh, you know, I, I always say that the American people should shudder anytime they hear the word closed doors, uh, because the moment you have members behind closed doors, they can do whatever they want. They can come out, they can shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, we tried, we just couldn't get it done." Uh, we need to throw the doors open, and uh, and and that's really what you're saying is that look, just uh, changing the players isn't isn't working right now in terms of those shifts. So so what does need to happen? Well, you're absolutely right, and if you look at what's happening in Washington right now with the COVID relief negotiations, with the omnibus spending bill negotiations, they're all happening behind closed doors. And you're right. I guarantee you, when when bills emerge after this process, everyone will immediately start talking about themselves in the third person, and they will be referring to themselves as victims. And that is all designed to help them to win elections. And getting back to elections, they're not going to make it better if we can't hold people accountable 
for the decisions they make in office. And I think that's the key thing. And you're and you're absolutely right to, to even begin to get Congress back to doing the job it was meant to do by our extraordinary founders. What we have to do is to, to get them to deliberate in a way that the American people can see their claims are being adjudicated. Yeah. And until then, it doesn't matter how many times you change the players. That's right. That's right, because they're going to continue to scamper behind closed doors, emerge with nothing having changed, and then being able to use, as you said, the the victimhood uh, to go uh, send out some fundraising emails and try to raise some campaign cash. Uh, one of the things I, I promised our listeners today, I said James is going to help us understand uh, this idea of unanimous consent. Uh, it was uh, designed early on to help smooth and kind of keep the processes flowing in the Senate, but it's become something very different. And then what happens if someone objects or, and we use, we hear all these words of blocking and obstructing and all of that. So James, help us through, I, I kind of get a shiver when I hear the word unanimous consent or UC as it's often referred to, uh, why should we be worried about such things? Well, the language we use to talk about politics is very, very important because what it does is it it sends signals to people that that your opponents are either illegitimate or that you are you are righteous and they're they're being obstructionist and, and they shouldn't be allowed to do that. And unanimous consent is this procedure in the Senate that that really highlights this fact. Unanimous consent is basically the Senate saying. We are going to set aside our rules, our rules that make things rather cumbersome and empower individual senators on behalf of the states and the people they represent, places like Utah or Alabama or Florida or New Mexico and everywhere in between. Instead of empowering them and having to go through all of the hurdles that those rules erect, we're going, we know how this is going to end. And so we want to name this post office, for instance. So why don't we just ask unanimous consent to set that aside, all of those rules, and to just have a vote on it and to pass it. And, and that's really the procedure was originally developed for those purposes. And a unanimous consent request is simply a request that the Senate vote on something. And it takes if you think about it this way, it takes 100 senators for it to pass. It's unanimous. Right. And so when people say, well, you're blocking or you're an obstructionist because you objected to my consent request. Well, that's all by design to make your opponents villains in the eyes of the people and to create a situation where they feel compelled to agree with you. Yeah. You're, you're coercing their vote. If you don't want them to object, then don't ask for their permission. But they have every right to object. That's the whole point of unanimous consent. That's right. And and they're really just saying, uh, I think we should talk about this on the floor of the Senate and let the American people see it. <laughs> and then we can amend it and we can and take a vote that everybody can be accountable for, uh, as opposed to just doing this sweeping unanimous consent. I, I remember uh, when I was chief of staff of, I mean, I would, I'd get shivers, especially in December uh, and it wasn't from the cold of uh, D.C. It was the, the cold of, oh, my goodness, these unanimous consents are piling up. Uh, and some of them spend millions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money that no one even knows about. No one's read any of this stuff. And we're just going to say by unanimous consent and away it goes. So really, it's just calling on Congress to do their job, right? Yeah. And if you if you object in those environments, especially at the end of a Congress all, or you threaten to object, all of a sudden, all of your colleagues are going to start coming to you and they'll say, well, I really need this to win an election or I really need this for X, Y, Z. And can you just make this one exception? And then one exception turns into two exceptions, turns into three exceptions. And then all of a sudden you're not reading the legislation before it passes. You have no idea how much this stuff spends. And you are basically creating an environment where you are disenfranchising yourself. 
because you are saying if you have to go along with whatever it is that they want to do. And if you stand up, then you're basically a schmuck. I mean, that's the way the kind of the the environment that they try to cultivate inside the Senate, which is remarkable if you think about it. Yeah, it, it is. It is a, an incredible culture there. And, and often it's the people on your own side of the aisle who are trying to get something through that they're going to put in a brochure for their uh, reelection campaign uh, that often uh, put the most pressure on members of Congress uh, to just stand aside uh, and uh, and not object uh, or not force it to either. And remember, people have options too. If you if you object to a unanimous consent, the people can immediately file the bill and, of course, have it on the floor and get a vote. Or what they often do, well, they'll find another bill they can tuck it into a big omnibus where nobody, maybe nobody will see it. That's right. And when someone asks unanimous consent, if you want to object to it, you can always, you know, it may be for different reasons. Someone may say, I want to have unanimous consent that we pass a bill that says apple pie is glorious. <laughs> and you may want to add to that bill, you know, that maybe sweet tea is, is, is glorious, too. And they, but they don't like sweet tea and the, and the interests they represent don't want that to happen. And so they refuse to allow you to have a vote on your uh, amendment to that. And they block you and they're trying to to bet that you also like apple pie and that your constituents like apple pie. And therefore, you're going to cave in the end and allow them to go forward without having a vote on your amendment related to sweet tea. And that really illustrates this hypothetical in a very simplistic fashion, how the entire the environment is structured in such a way. The language that we use is developed and intended for specific purposes, Mm -hmm. all designed to make it impossible for individual senators to stand up for what may be very common sense reasons, but yeah. it's up to them to decide that on behalf of their constituents and say no, yeah. but the, the environment doesn't allow for that. Yeah, yeah, great stuff, great insight as always. James Walner from R Street to join us. We're going to have him back, and we're going to continue this discussion about the process and how we get it right. Thanks for joining us, James. We'll step aside for bottom of the hour break, and when we come back, Holly Richardson's going to join us. The new editor of Utah Policy Daily. Don't miss it. Stay with us on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.